got an unconfirmed sighting report. Uh, David and Carolyn leaving Grand Canyon this morning. We don't know where they're going. They're smart enough not to tell us, but uh, they were seen leaving Grand Canyon. We'll see where they go from here. If you've been uh, here for several weeks, you've been hearing us go through the book of Galatians, hearing David teach on it. And there's a theme that that I, I, I can't imagine hasn't jumped out to you. The point that David made over and over is that if we want to change, if we want to deal with the sin in our lives and all the garbage that puts in our lives, we don't change ourselves by force or, or, or emotional uh, violence to ourselves. We simply look in His face and we see Him as He is. And as we see Him as He is, something happens, something changes us. We become like Him because we see Him as He is. Well, how do we do that? How do we look into His face? Well, we open His Word. We open the Scriptures and see who He, he shows Himself to be in His Word. That's why whenever we come together on Sundays, we open His Word. Or during the week in growth groups or women's studies or all other different contexts, we open His Word because we want to see His face. And what better place to look at His face than in the Gospels? And what better Gospel than the Gospel of Mark? Mark is the oldest gospel. In fact, we're almost certain that uh, Matthew and Luke had a copy of the gospel of Mark in front of them when they were writing their gospels, using it as a, as a reference source. It's also the gospel that comes from Peter, the apostle Peter. We're told by one of John the apostle's disciples that Mark was a close companion, a close friend of Peter. In fact, Peter, at the end of 1 Peter 5.13, refers to Mark as his son. He loved him. They were very close. And Mark uh, is the, uh, the, or Peter is the source of the information that Mark gives to us. In fact, let me sketch out for you real briefly what we do know about Mark. Mark's full name was John Mark. Uh, his nickname, we know this from a second century source, was Stumpy Fingers. I don't know what that meant, whether he had fat little fingers or what, but that was his nickname. Um, his mother, he was the, the son of a very wealthy woman who was one of the early followers of Jesus. Her name was Mary. She had a large house. And the disciples of, of Christ would, would meet together in her house. Very shortly after the, the crucifixion, they met there. And then on, as an early church, that was one of their primary meeting places. When Peter was released from prison in Acts 12, the first place he went was to John Mark's mother's house. Because uh, he knew he'd find believers there. And there he found the prayer meeting. There's even some speculation that uh, the Last Supper, before our Lord's arrest and, and, and crucifixion, took place at John Mark's mother's house. Uh, we have a, an account in Mark, it's only found in Mark, of a young man, really a boy, who was found hiding in the garden where Jesus was arrested, wearing only his sleeping garments. And the, one of the, the soldiers saw him there and tried to grab him, and he wiggled out of his robe and ran home naked. Well, the... A speculation, and it's almost—I mean—it's very probable that that young man was Mark himself. What may have happened was that the disciples and Jesus were upstairs sharing in the Last Supper. Jesus was teaching them. Mark had already been put to bed downstairs. When he heard them come down and leave, he snuck out in his PJs, following them, hiding in the trees. When uh, Jesus was arrested, he was still hiding, and the rest of the disciples all fled, but Mark was still hiding. And one of the soldiers saw him there, tried to grab him, and that's when he streaked home. 
We don't uh, hear much about Mark for a while until much later. We hear about him again in Acts when his uncle, Barnabas, Barnabas was Mark's uncle, uh, and Paul were going out on their first missionary journey. They uh, decided to take Mark with them as their assistant, their secretary, the one who helped make travel arrangements. So Mark traveled with him up into what's now Lebanon. They went over to Cyprus. But then when they got ready to go into what's now Turkey, a place that was very notorious for being a dangerous place up in the hill country where there were a lot of robbers, dangerous roads, Mark decided he didn't want to go anymore. And he turned and went back. And Paul and Barnabas went up, finished their journey. But when it came time for their second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas decided to go again. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark. Paul has said, nothing doing. He punked out on us last time. I don't want him with us. We can't count on him. And the, dis- the uh, dissension between Paul and Barnabas became so strong that they split ways. Paul took Silas and went one way. Barnabas took Mark and went another way. So at this point in his life, uh, Mark was not on Paul's list of, of favorite people. We don't hear anything else about him for quite some time till the end of, of the book of Colossians and Philemon. There, something has happened. Something has changed in the meantime because Paul refers to Mark as his fellow minister and says, he's here in prison with, with me in Rome. And he writes to the Colossian believers, he says, if, if Mark makes it to visit you, welcome him. He's a good guy. And at the end of, of 2 Timothy, uh, Paul knows he's going to die. He's getting ready for that, uh, that event. And he, he writes Timothy and he tells Timothy to bring some stuff to him that he needs. And he says, Timothy, there's somebody I want you to find and bring him with you. Right at the end of his life, there were two people that Paul wanted to see before he died. One of them was Timothy and the other was John Mark. So something had happened. Mark had obviously redeemed himself in the eyes of Paul. Well, what probably happened is during that time where Paul and Mark were traveling in different circles, Mark had uh, started hanging around with Peter. Peter was a guy who knew what it was like to blow it early in life, and maybe he was a little quicker to uh, welcome Mark in than, than Paul might have been. I don't know. But we're told that he became Peter's secretary, traveling with Peter, making arrangements for Peter. We're told that he was with Peter even up to his death. And apparently, either right before Peter died or right after Peter died, Mark wanted to write down all the stories Peter had been telling about Jesus, all the things that Peter had been telling people that Jesus said. Mark wanted to write all this down so that it wasn't lost. And so that's what he did. That's what we have in the Gospel of Mark, are the stories about Jesus that Peter told. Now, they're roughly chronological. They begin at the beginning of his ministry. They end after his resurrection. But they really, a lot of them are not chronological. Mark's objective was not to get everything in right order. His objective was to get everything accurately, to get exactly what Peter said, exactly what Peter was teaching. You see, Mark heard these things as Peter taught. Peter would be making a point... And then he'd use something that Jesus did or something that Jesus said to drive that point home, to illustrate it, to make people understand it. And so Mark heard all of these stories in the context of teaching. So what we'll discover as we study through is that the, the, the book is really arranged thematically. We'll find within different chapters a theme, a, a point that's being made and being driven home with the teachings or the, or the miracles or the things that Jesus did. Another thing that I think we will discover as we study through this 
that we will enjoy is, is the emotion of this book. There is none of the other Gospels are nearly as, as explicit about Jesus' emotions. We see Jesus loving people, looking at people, and it says he loved him. Or, or we see his compassion. We see his, his, his grieving. We see in, in the accounts of Jesus bringing the young children before the disciples to teach them. Only in Mark are we told that he brought them onto his lap and hugged them. Uh, when he heals somebody who had leprosy, we're told by Mark that Jesus embraced him, that he grabbed him. That we see a lot of Jesus' emotion and, and compassion. We also have a lot of events where the exact words that Jesus uses are, are quoted in Aramaic rather than Greek. The, the gospel is written in Greek, but there's a lot of Aramaic pieces. And I think that's because when Peter would tell the stories of something Jesus was doing, when, when he got to the point where Jesus said something, it was so vivid in his mind, he could just hear Jesus saying it. And so he used the exact words that Jesus said, the Aramaic words. See, this gospel has Peter written all over it. And Peter was the passionate disciple. And so through his eyes, the passions of our Lord shine through clearly and powerfully. One other thing I want to uh, point out about this gospel before we get into it is Mark's use of a little word, euthos. It's a little Greek word that doesn't mean much, it, but it means straight or straight away. For some reason, Mark uses that word 42 times in this gospel. I have about 18 pages in my copy of the gospel. And Mark uses it 42 times. The other gospel writers use it three, a couple of them use it four times each. Mark uses it 42 times. Now, there's something going on. It's on every page. It's constantly euthos. Like I said, it, it can mean straight when it's used as, a, as an adjective. Uh, in verse 3, it says, make his path straight. But it's almost always used as an adverb. Straight away. Immediately is how it's translated most of the time. Directly. Right away. And I think what, what's going on here is that Mark is, is, is the shortest of all the Gospels by far. It's most economical. It just moves from one thing to another. And it moves directly to the heart of a matter. It moves directly to the main point. I think what Paul or Mark is trying to do for us in it, with his style is showing that's the way Jesus was operating. You see, Jesus' ministry that we have recorded is, is, is very brief. It's only three years. But Jesus accomplished all of this in three years because Jesus knew right where he was going. And he went directly to the heart of a matter. When he was talking with somebody, he cut directly to what was important, what was true, what was the heart of the matter. And so Paul, our Mark, with his style, tries to demonstrate that Jesus was cutting straight, knew where he was going, was headed there directly. And that's the way his story is described to us. So, let's go directly into Mark. Verse 1, look at this sentence. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you graduated out of fifth grade, you recognize that that is not a sentence. Uh, there's no verb here. There, there's no object, just a subject. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is this? This is Mark's title. Mark didn't call his book Mark. He said... My book is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right from the beginning, we know what this is going to be about. It's going to be about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know who He is. He is the Son of God. See, what He's going to describe for us is his, who Jesus is. 
what his, what his life was about, what he said and what he did. That's his focus, who Jesus Christ is. And so that's what he describes for us, his, his ministry, his miracles, his, his teachings, his, his death, his resurrection. So for the next couple of months, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark to see who Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is, what he said, what he did. We're going to be looking so that we can look into his face and see who our Lord really is. Mark sets the uh, stage very quickly, as quickly as possible. First, by telling us that all of this stuff was prophesied. We knew it was coming. He starts by quoting uh, Malachi, which is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Malachi ends with a, a looking forward to, the whole Old Testament ends with a looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so he quotes Malachi, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Actually, the pronouns are wrong in that. If you look back in Malachi, the pronouns say, Behold, I will send before your face one who will prepare my way, the way for me. See, God was saying he was coming. And, and this was a warning that the priests needed to get ready for the coming of God himself. And then uh, Mark quotes uh, Isaiah. He says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This time it's the voice of one crying in the wilderness that is getting people ready for the coming of God himself. Again, when you read these verses in context, that is who is coming. And then Mark tells us that the messenger, that voice, that one crying out was John the Baptist. John was out in the wilderness out where nobody is. The word wilderness means desolate place, lonely place, dry and, and, and empty. Mark was out, or, or John the Baptist was out there. There's nobody there. But people streamed from the cities and the countryside. They, they flocked out there to hear his message, to be baptized by him. See, this, the symbolism here is, is real clear. What's going on is these people realized back then, that their lives were desolate places. They were empty. They were alone and lonely. They were dry. They were hungry. They were thirsty. And being people of Israel, they knew that's not the way it was supposed to be. They had been told there was more to it. They had been told that there was something going to happen. There was one who was going to come. And they looked forward to it and they were longing for it. So that's why they were coming out to John, who was telling them that he's coming. God is coming. The Messiah is coming. And when they got out there, what they heard him say is, he's coming, but you're not ready. You're not ready. And they agreed. They said, you're right, we're not ready. Get us ready. How do we get ready? And so he was baptizing them. Now, baptism was not a new thing to Jews. Baptism was one of the, uh, the rites, the rituals a person had to go through when they became a Jew. One of the things they had to do was to be washed all over, symbolizing the, the cleaning off of all the pollution from their, their former life, symbolizing their admission that where they had been going is wrong. Now they want to follow right what is true. Where they had been what, what was, was a mistake. Admitting that and saying, now we want to follow the true God. Now, the, the, the thing that was unique about John's baptism, though, 
was that he was talking to Jews, people who had already been baptized, people who had grown up in the Jewish faith. And he said, listen, the fact that you grew up in church, the fact that that you've already been baptized, doesn't matter. The fact that you've got the right label for yourself doesn't matter because you're not ready for God to come. Like I said, these people agreed with him. They said, you're right. Get us ready. See, don't get the impression that, that John was out there screaming at them. You may have watched some old Hollywood movies and John's on the rock with his finger, long bony finger pointing out and screaming and yelling. That's not necessarily what he was doing. He did have some choice words for those who tried to stop others from getting ready. But John was just explaining to them, the Messiah is coming and we've got to get ready. And so he was baptizing them. And they were saying, you're right, we want this. You see, they weren't playing any games. They realized the seriousness of it. They knew they were in the wilderness. They knew they were hungry. They knew they were thirsty. They knew they were alone. And they weren't about to let their pride get in the way. They weren't about to worry about what other people were thinking. They, didn't, they, they, they weren't embarrassed to walk out there into the wilderness. They weren't embarrassed to walk into the water and get baptized because it was important. They were smart enough to know that either you kill your pride or it kills you. And they weren't going to let anything get in the way of their getting ready for what their hearts longed for. So, like I said, John was baptizing them for the remission of their sins, the forgiveness of their sins, and they confessed. He told them, I baptize you with water, a symbolic act. I wash the outside. It doesn't really touch your heart. It doesn't really clean you inside doesn't really give you a new life. But there's one who's coming after me who will baptize you in the Spirit. It touches the inside. It cleans you inside. It gives you a new life inside. That's the one we are looking forward to. That's the one we're anticipating. In verse 1, or verse 9, what we are anticipating comes. This is the place where there'd be a fanfare. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Here's the one that we're looking for. Here's the one the Old Testament said was coming. Here's the one that John was getting them ready for. He's here. He comes and is baptized. You know, again, Mark just cuts straight to the point. There's nothing about his birth, no angels and shepherds. Nothing about him growing up. Nothing about any of the stuff that we get in the other Gospels, the, the, the preamble. Straight to the point. Here's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. Here's Jesus at his baptism. Now, now, why was Jesus baptized? He was the one that they were getting ready for. He didn't have to get ready for himself. Uh, he had nothing to be cleansed of. He had no old life to renounce and to admit that he was wrong. Why was he doing this? Well, I think at the beginning... Of his ministry. Jesus wanted to identify with these people. He said these were the people that were going to be his kingdom. These were the people who weren't playing games. Who were being honest. Who knew their spiritual hunger. And knew their spiritual need. These are the people who were honest with themselves. And with other people. These are the people who wanted God. Who would make up his kingdom. I think what humility on Jesus' part to join with these people, knowing that a lot of the people standing around would get confused and think, well, look, see, Jesus is a sinner just like the rest of us. But Jesus didn't worry about what people thought. Jesus wasn't too terribly 
concerned that they would be mistaken. He, he was not ashamed to be counted among us, to be considered one of us, even though he did not sin. He did not need to be baptized, but he tells us in, in Matthew, it was that all righteousness might be fulfilled. He, Jesus wanted to do whatever it took to, 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 to love us. That's just the way Jesus is. He has never been one to stand on formality. If what it takes to love us, to love someone, is to get down on your hands and knees and wash their feet, Jesus got down on his hands and knees and washed their feet. If what it takes to love someone was to to anger all of the religious leaders and the stuffy people by healing somebody on the Sabbath, Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. If what it takes to love us was to suffer the humiliation and the pain of his death on the cross, then Jesus goes through the humiliation and the pain and dies for us because he's willing to do whatever no holds barred whatever to love us are you willing to do whatever for him you're willing to to do whatever's necessary to express your love to him if it takes admitting your own inadequacy if, if it takes turning away from something in your life that you know is wrong is destructive if it takes forgiving someone, if it takes everything you've got, losing everything you have, are you willing to do whatever? We're going to come back to this because Mark, like I said, always cuts to the point and he'll come to this again. But let's go on. See, I don't think at this point that John knew that Jesus was the Messiah. When, John, when Jesus came into the water to be baptized, and this is speculation on my part, it's hard to know exactly when he knew what, but I don't think he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. I think he knew that here was a man that didn't need to be baptized. Jesus was John's younger cousin. They knew each other growing up. And even though I don't think he knew that he was the Messiah, I think he knew that here was a guy that didn't have anything to repent of. Here was a guy who already knew God and loved him with his whole heart, strength, and soul, and mind. In fact, we're told in Matthew that, that, that John tried to refuse, but Jesus insisted. Jesus said, no, this is important. I want to do it. It's important that I make this first step, that I start my ministry this way. Well, coming out of the water, I don't think there were any questions left. Verse 10. I think John knew exactly who he was dealing with by this time. And immediately coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens opening up and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. And immediately this Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. <clears throat> and he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. This is the Father's affirmation right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Yeah, up to this point, as far as we know, Jesus hadn't done anything. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's in the next verse that he goes out into the wilderness to struggle with and to overcome the attacks of the enemy. At this point, as far as we know, Jesus hasn't done anything. But still the Father says, I love you. I- I'm pleased with you. And right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before he has a chance to prove himself, the Father affirms him like this. You know, I think if I was Jesus' father, I would have said, Jesus, listen, and you're about to be tested. you got a rough three years ahead of you. Buck up, make me proud, 
Now, don't let me down. You know how much is riding on this whole thing. We've planned this for a few million, billion years. Come on. This is it. This is the important part. Don't let me down. That's not at all the way the Father addressed him. A priori, right from the start, before Jesus had a chance to prove himself, the Father says, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm pleased with you. We're told later on by Jesus that everything he knows about loving, he learned from the Father. And we can see here where, he, where, where the Lord learned to love us so well. We can see that's the way he treats us. You know, Jesus had done nothing at this point except submit to baptism, confess his desire, his commitment to honoring his Father, to loving us. And as we submit to him, without doing anything, we hear him tell us, I love you. I'm proud of you. You know, and then it's from that position of, of knowing His love, knowing His pleasure, that we go out and face the struggles of life. Not as somebody who's on trial, who's being tested, but rather as somebody who is loved, who's already accepted. And from that love, have, having confidence, having security, that it's in that love that we're acting, and we're going to stay in that love no matter what happens. Well, verses 12 and 13 We're told immediately that after receiving this affirmation, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. There we go again to that lonely place, that empty place. We're even told that he was out there with the wild animals. Wild animals hang around where there's no people. As soon as people move in, the animals, they they move out. And I think we're told that, uh, that, that there was just nobody there. Jesus was alone. The only things around him were wild animals. He was all alone. He was isolated. He was in a dry, hungry place. He went 40 days without food. 40 days is a long time. Now, think back what was happening 40 days ago. We were still a week away from starting the ground war in Iraq. That's a long time ago. And I'm sure Jesus was out there struggling. You know, the enemy was attacking. Here he was, alone and hungry and tired. Isolated. That's when the enemy always attacks. When we're hungry, when there's something we're looking for, we're thirsty, we're feeling alone, we're inside ourselves, not, not really making contact with other people. That's when the enemy comes on strongest. And if Jesus had come to me for counseling right now, I'd probably have said, well, listen, Jesus, get out of that wilderness. That's a mistake. Get around some people. Start ministering. Start getting involved in fellowship. Obviously, you've missed God's will here. And that's why you're going through such a tough time. Uh, you know, that's, that, that's obviously wrong. It's blatantly wrong because we're told that the Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. He was exactly where God wants him. And you see, sometimes God drives us into the wilderness. He puts us in a place where we're hungry, when we're thirsty, when we're alone, we're isolated. And that's when the enemy attacks. And God lets him attack. I think it's important to start off with to realize that the attack itself isn't sin. The, the, the feelings we get, the thoughts that come into our mind, the hunger that's there, the, the thirst, the loneliness is not sin. That's what Jesus was feeling. Those thoughts were coming to, to his mind. Martin Luther, when he was dealing with uh, a young man who was struggling against lust, he said, listen, you can't stop the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building nests in your hair. You can't stop those thoughts from coming, those feelings, those those hungers, those desires, 
You can't stop the, 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 the reflex that causes us to turn to something other than God to have our needs met. But we can keep them from building nests in our hair. We can, we can stop right there and say, no, that's wrong. As hungry as I am after 40 days, I'm not going to turn these stones into bread and take matters into my own hand. I'm going to trust the Father who brought me out here and He had a reason to bring me out here, even if I don't know it. See, he held on to the truth of who his father was and how much he was loved, how proud his father was of him. No matter what was happening, he held on to what was true and what was real. And that's the challenge for us. But see, as lonely as the wilderness is, Jesus was not alone. Ron Gonzalez commented on these verses, saying, God is not in the temptations we endure. Rather, he is in us as we encounter them. You see... Jesus wasn't alone. The Father was there with him. And the Father's design for him, the Father's design for us during those times is not our destruction. It's not that not to put us on trial so that if we win, he'll love us. If we fail, he'll be disgusted with us and reject us. Now he brings us out there so that we will turn to Him and we will learn to trust Him. We will look into His face. We will hold tightly to Him and see His power over sin. We will, we will grow in our joy and our confidence in Him. See, and that's what happened to Jesus. We're told that the, the angels ministered to Him. I doubt if Jesus could see the angels any more than we can, but they were there. And they were taking care of Him. They were ministering to Him. Now here we get to the uh, heart of things, verses 14 and 15. Remember Mark's style, cutting straight to the heart of things. He's been setting the stage. By this point in the other three Gospels, we're midway through chapter 4. Now, in, in Mark's Gospel, we're in about the fourth paragraph. He's cutting straight to it. Verse 14. And after John <clears throat> excuse me, had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus came preaching the good news about God. At this point in his ministry, that was his focus, was, was telling people the good news about God. That's why he came. That's what he, what he says. I came out to preach the gospel of God. And what he was saying is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has arrived. All the waiting is over. All the stuff that the Old Testament said was going to happen is happening. The one that John the Baptist said was coming is here. The king is here. The kingdom is here because the king is here. There's no more waiting, no more saying it'll happen someday. It's happening now. Today is the day. This is the time. Deal with it. Respond to it. And the response that he's asking for and that he's asking for today is repent and believe in the good news. Believe, believe in the gospel. It's very simple, very straightforward. You know, when I'm trying to share the gospel with somebody, I'll start talking to them and explaining it to them. And after I drone on for 15, 20 minutes, we both kind of look at each other and try to figure out what I said and what was the point of it all and what the heart of the gospel really is. And I think we just kind of leave more confused than we started. 
When I was in college, I remember being frustrated that nobody was telling all these people about God. So I decided that I was going to do it. And so I went, lived in a, a dorm with two towers, eight floors in each tower. So I went to the other tower, making sure it wasn't on my own floor. <laughs> Had to start somewhere. And so I went over to the other tower, went on to this one floor, knocked on a door. And this girl came to the door. And I said, uh, can I talk to you about God? She said, sure. She was very gracious. She invited me in. We sat in a couple of chairs. She said, well... I said, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what I was talking about. And so we just talked for about a half hour. And about a, after a half hour went, I figured I had presumed on her hospitality long enough. And I thanked her and said, okay. And I said goodbye. Went and knocked on another door. Asked me if I'd come in. Went in. Sat down. We talked for about a half hour. And by the end of the day, I think there was a whole floor full of confused people thinking, who was that guy? What was he talking about? Well, a lot of years have gone by since then. A lot of theological training, a lot of ministry experience. But I still find when I sit down and talk to somebody about the gospel, about ten minutes into it, this, their eyes kind of glaze over. and They're in the back of their head saying, what is this guy talking about? See, that wasn't the way it was with Jesus. Jesus cut straight to the heart of the matter. It's so simple, so straightforward. His message was repent. Repent simply means Change your mind. Change what you're thinking. Change what you're thinking. Stop thinking the way you've been thinking. Stop thinking that you're all on your own to live or die by your own devices. Stop thinking that there's nobody, nobody that you can trust, really, ultimately. Stop thinking that there's nobody who cares, that, that, that everything will stay the same, that the best you can hope for out of this life is a little pleasure along the way. Stop thinking that it's always going to be this way. It always has been. It'll never change. It's, this is the way it is. Stop thinking those things and believe the good news. Believe it. Trust it. Accept it as real, as true. And then step out in your life based on that confidence. Believe the good news that there is somebody who cares. That, that there is somebody who can be trusted Things are not like they've always been because something has changed. The kingdom has arrived because the king is here. And he can be trusted. Here is finally somebody who does care, who can be trusted, who is worth living for, really worth living for, who is worth dying for. Here's the answer to all of my longings and my hungers. Here's the one who will love me and be proud of me without making me earn that. Here's the one who's been to the wilderness and can lead me out. Here's the one who knows where he's going and asked me to follow him. You see, that's the good news. Believe it. Look at verses 16 through 20. This is uh, how four guys responded when they heard. And one of those guys happens to be Peter, the one who brings us the story. But listen... Verse 16. And as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter. He saw Peter and Andrew, and the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And they immediately left the nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in their boat mending nets. And immediately he called them, 
And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. See, these guys believed it. And they immediately left everything. They left their nets, they left their boats, they left their, their parents. They, they, they left everything they had and followed the king because the king was here. I realize this wasn't the first time these guys had met Jesus. And the other Gospels were told of other conversations they even had with Jesus. Most of these guys were disciples of John the Baptist. And they had seen Jesus. They had heard Him speak. But they were thinking about it. They were working over in their mind how to respond to this guy. How to respond to this new thing. And Jesus came to tell them the time for thinking about it's over. Now's the time to respond. The kingdom is here. Deal with it. Respond. And Mark with his... his, his, his fast-paced, rapid-fire style is bringing us to the same point where we have to realize the time has come to decide. No more putting it off. The time is now. And this may be the first time you've thought through these issues. You've considered your need to be washed inside. You face the fact that you are in a wilderness. You are alone. That you're hungry. That you're thirsty. Well, are you ready? Are you willing to do whatever? Are you willing to put your pride aside and admit that you've been wrong? Admit that you need Him and then turn and follow Him? If you've never done that, do that now. Follow Him. Listen to Him. Or maybe you've done that a long time ago, but you've forgotten. You've forgotten how much He loves you. You've forgotten how proud He is of you. You've started believing those lies again, that, that you're on your own, that nobody really cares, that there's nobody be, to be trusted. And you've gone back to your nets to try to take care of yourself by yourself forgetting the fact that the King has come. Whether you're ready to stop the way you've been thinking, to stop thinking those things, and to believe the good news that He's here, that He's calling you to follow Him. And that's all He's doing. He's calling us to follow Him. We don't know what that all means. Realize, these guys didn't know what it means. It it, it meant they were starting after Jesus. They were going to stick with Him and go wherever He went. But it wasn't for at least three or four years that they had a clue what that really was about. And we're in the same way. We're asked to take a step, not knowing really what it means. Because we're not asked to to embrace a theological system that we could study out of a book, or a a new philosophy, or or even an ethical system to consider and mull over and discuss. We're being called to follow Him to walk with Him, to listen to Him, to be loved by Him, and to learn how to return that love to Him. That's what we're being asked to do. It may cost you everything. It may change everything in your life. It did for these disciples. But when they realized that the time had come, we're told that immediately, straight away, they left everything and followed Him. These guys were fishermen. They were, they were simple people. But they were no fools. What we're going to do right now is to take a minute to 
reflect on these things. David's going to uh, lead us in a song in a second. Uh, I guess Gay or Carol, I don't know who is here to play the music, is going to play a chorus for us. I guess Claudia is. She's the one running towards the front right now. <laughs> it's going to play a chorus for us. Uh, and I want you to think about these things. To realize the time has come. The time... The piano's over here. <laughs> the time is now to decide, are you going to follow him? Are you going to change what you've been thinking and believe the good news? Let me pray and we'll... Uh, We'll go ahead and do that. We also have a baptismal full of water. If this is the first time you've made this decision and you want to, or, or you just want to express this decision through baptism, come on up afterwards and we'll talk about it. And maybe if the opportunity is here, we'll even go ahead with a baptism. So let's pray. Lord, it is so hard for us to admit that we are wrong. We want to somehow work it around so that we've been right all along and this is just another step on us being right. We want to play games. Lord, help us to be as smart as these people who were coming to John who realized there was no, this was too important to play games. Just to admit that we need you, that we are in a wilderness without you. Help us to admit when we have started believing the lies again and we've forgotten how much you love us. Lord, draw us back to you to be ready, to be willing to do whatever, no matter what anybody thinks about it, but to, to respond to your incredible love by being willing to love like you love, to do whatever it takes to express our love back to you. Lord, speak to each heart here this morning.